0: I am Heike Langdon, and I am working on a Master of Science in Urban Studies, and the focus of my work is on redlining.
1: So I will ask, I do want to ask about redlining, but let me ask first, backing up to, so why Urban Studies? How did you fall into that department at the university?
0: Sure. So um, I do work at a university, so I have the benefit of um, some of my coursework being paid for. Ooh, okay. And I loved my program in my public administration program so much that when I finished that, I took a semester off and thought, well, why not just go ahead and get the one in urban studies? And why urban studies instead of something else? Um, I'm fascinated by how communities function, how they're built, how policy impacts them, how we we all live in some kind of community, and urban studies looks at it from both the physical built environment, but as well the, infra- the the human infrastructure that either makes a happy, successful, cohesive, positive community that people want to live in, or places that are that that struggle, that alienate some people, that are uneven and not someplace where people want to live and choose to move elsewhere.
1: That's interesting because it reminds me, I I was going to ask you, oh, well, then why not? I'm not sure what department it falls into, but why not? You know, whatever civic planning falls into so all that stuff. And it sounds like urban studies reminds me of like the geography of kind of looks at the whole picture of the of the situation. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So more than just like the physical geography of the community. But um, in our program, it also looks at uh, the the human like the human environment, not just the built environment.
1: How did you find yourself uh, at your particular university, teaching there, kind of working your way through the program? Why there? Why you?
0: So, I've lived in Omaha for 25 years.
1: Okay, that's a good reason.
0: (laughs) It's a good reason. It's a good start. And then, but um, eight years ago, the university built a community engagement center. And at the time, I was working, I'd been working in nonprofits for almost 20 years. And the community engagement center is a place where, at this point, about 30 nonprofits have offices. And so this moving to the university gave me a chance to work with multiple nonprofits instead of just one. And then while I'm here, I, I already had one master's degree and then had this opportunity to get the second one in public administration where I would apply what I had learned in the field to in a more academic environment. So kind of a practitioner sort of a pracademic as a friend likes to say, uh, (laughs) situation. And then, and then it went from, um, the MPA to urban studies. So that's how I ended up at UNO.
1: Does it feel weird? So your place in, in, uh, the urban studies program, are you very different than some of the other students who maybe march right through school and aren't coming as from another career or second career?
0: (laughs) How did you guess? Um, yeah, I, I I swear some of the students look at me like, why is this old lady in my class? (laughs) Especially the geography class, the GIS class was really difficult because a lot of the students actually were geography students and knew how to use the software walking into the class. And I was coming from a Mac background into GIS, and it was just really a struggle. So, uh, yeah, some of the students really are. They're coming straight out of their undergrad and decided for different reasons to go and get a master's. For me, I bring um, a different perspective. And luckily my professors all do a great job of balancing both sides. I, I never feel like, just because I'm the oldest person in the classroom, sometimes older than the teachers, that that's a down, that, that, that that's a negative. It's more, um, what do I bring as far as my own personal experience in the world?
1: So as you as you compare kind of the um, <clears throat> two degrees you got, one in public administration and one with this more narrower focus, what did you study in public administration and how was it different than what you studied in the urban studies specialization?
0: So things like leadership and um, statistics and things like that, some of the classes, no matter whether you're public administration or urban studies, you would take those anyway. Got um, it. The public administration focuses definitely more on the The business of running a nonprofit and urban studies is more uh, about community building, mm-hmm. but I would say that's the biggest difference.
1: What in what you heard about it in advance, or what you found when you studied in the urban studies department? What particularly captured your imagination? Like, why did you really want to do this?
0: I. Th- you know, it's that's interesting because I, from PA, I loved policy. I, I'm kind of a policy geek, and um, okay. I thought that urban studies would be an, the next step of understanding how policies that are created by government officials or community leaders or whoever um, then get implemented into the physical world. Mm-hmm. That was kind of my interest in it.
1: And was that, was, that, was that the payoff? Do you feel like now as you approach the end that that's a, kind of exactly what it did?
0: Yeah. That's a good question. Um, I would say yes, because I hadn't really thought a lot about, I mean, I knew about redlining before. I'd heard about redlining in the past, but the idea yeah. of really looking at how policies that were created back in the 1930s through the 70s, are still impacting how cities across America are either thriving or struggling. Um, it, it, It took that information and put it into a very specific, this policy impacts us this way. So yes,
1: so that's interesting that redlining was your focus because I know, so I'm here in Johnson County in the Kansas city metro area, Ooh. not a few hours from Omaha oh, Yeah, and redlining was obviously a big deal here. Oh, and yeah. Very clear policy and still has repercussions. All the stuff may be carved away in many ways, legislatively now, but it's still sitting as an effect that just cannot be conquered. <clears throat> we have a local the Johnson County museum, which is Johnson County is very wealthy and part of the, I live in the land of urban flight, of white flight from from the urban core. And it's interesting having that redlining exhibit in a place that was sort of formed from people leaving an area for racial, social reasons. So it's all... Anyway, I'll just say that it's alive here. What is... is Did Omaha also li- live through a period of redlining? Is that part of the reason why you were interested? Or you heard about it from someplace else that kind of sparked your interest?
0: No, it's it's actually... It's very... Omaha is very similar to Kansas city in that way in that, um, part of the city. I went, so when I moved to Omaha, um, yeah. I was told North Omaha is dangerous. North Omaha is, um, don't go to North Omaha. North Omaha is also, it's, it's crime. It's where, um, there's no, there are no jobs. There, there are no grocery stores. Um, it's where the toxic, uh, Industries were located. It's like there's nothing in North Omaha. Just stay away from it. Okay. As if somehow the people in that part of the community chose that that's what they wanted. And looking on it now, the the, the processes that the, the policies that redlining put into place forced that. So when you look at a map of Omaha, where you look at the poorest neighborhood. You you look mm-hmm. at the, the zip code that has the highest unemployment. You look at the schools that do the worst. They're all in a specific area. And if you put the map of redlining on Omaha, it it it's so close you could draw, I mean it's it's you it's the same map. <laughs> and so it's not that, you know, so so I look at it now and there's this kind of attitude if you don't know what redlining is or that this was a thing, you just look at somehow these people made bad decisions. They didn't take care of their stuff. They somehow chose to be um, a, a bad neighborhood as, as if that was something that had no cause and redlining is very, looking at redlining makes people look at the fact that um, if you can't borrow, if you can't get insurance, if you can, if the city doesn't invest in the schools and parks and roads in your neighborhood, of course it's going to be the worst part of town. And people don't choose that. It's chosen for them. So that's where my kind of passion for looking at redlining comes from. Because as my adopted city, I look at it and think, you know, we could do better. We should do better. I was just on a phone call with someone else about this. And, you know, it could be better. But only if we look at the causes of things, can we fix them? And and redlining and the, the negative impact that it still has is a, is a cause. And we're never going to be able to be a, a, a healthy, complete city taking everyone's gifts together until we really actually acknowledge that. And Kansas City has the same, um, when you look at Westport and different neighborhoods in Kansas City, as opposed to, like you said, Johnson County, um, right. it's, it's the same there Johnson County has pretty much the same history as Evanston, Illinois or St. Paul, Minneapolis or Omaha S- parts of cities that people were segregated into different neighborhoods that were then purposefully neglected. It's, is actually goes all the way to California. It's not like it just happened in the South or in the Midwest or cities that weren't, didn't grow after the sixties. It's, it's a national thing.
1: Can I ask, in, in digging deeper into that, I'm always curious about, and I suppose I have to now go to that museum exhibit to see what's there, how much of this is uh, explicit legislation by city council or or state funding where we're clear about this? this is a neighborhood we're not putting any money in do they ever make it, how much of it is blatant and how much of it is, well, just the decisions that get made over time. So how much redlining is absolutely clear and how much of it is sort of a pervasive sense of, well, once somebody sets one thing up there in motion, people again, start leaving. They won't put money in. How much of it is absolute? How much of it is, I don't sure. Implicit.
0: Yeah. I, I understand what you're asking. So, um, back in back during the depression, when the, um, New Deal started. They actually created maps of cities, and Kansas City is one. Omaha is another. Where they talked to realtors and they divided up areas by zones A, B, C, D, and A was prime real estate where you would want, as a banker or a real estate agent, you would want to make a loan. Um, it's new. Pr- it was at the time. It was kind of new build. It was up and coming neighborhoods. Um, population in. In some areas, it specifically says, with no Negroes. Okay. And, and in other cities, it wasn't actually written in quite that way. But B was, um, you might want to make a loan there. It's okay. Mortgage lender mortgage lenders were okay with that. C was mixed use. And D was definitely, do not lend money here. And it was in the maps. And it was codified. And, and there's a lot of, um, there. yes, there is definitely specific Um, ways that you can go back and see that it was written into things where it also was written in was then you start looking at um, that's the word I'm looking for Um, covenants where covenants decided where people could or could not sell property and again if you can't sell your property you can't move up the property ladder if you can't get insurance on it and it's damaged you can't move up. You can't take care of your thing. So specifically until the 70s, it was in a lot of cities written in. And and only until then did it become implicit. Well, now um, it's the damage has been done and, and trying to get a loan, trying to get uh, insurance in those areas, they're already blighted. They're already damaged. And so trying to get a loan now in those areas, it's not It's not that it says it on paper that the law changed, but when you look at a particular neighborhood, you don't look at the housing stock in terms of, is it comparable? You look at it in terms of, oh, well, that's that part of town.
1: In looking at that early setup, if it happened during, if it happened out of the Depression in the New Deal, mm-hmm. what was the what was the specific justification for wanting to zone these urban areas anyway?
0: Well, so it was a national movement. So the idea was that, um, a, a, again, a lender could look at an the 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 construction industry was struggling people weren't buying houses they couldn't get okay. loans they were they were underwater on things and so trying to get money moving through loans lenders needed to have kind of a or the idea was that they by being able to use this standard if it's if it's zoned a you know that that's a safe place to loan your money uh, it made it easier to put money into this to to get money moving to get money flowing okay. Um, if you knew that it was D, you knew that you just don't even look at that. So that was the idea way back when, um, the fact that it was also inherently racist was back in the thirties, just not even something someone, I mean, that was sort of a given. Um, people didn't push back on that back then. It was just the, the way of the world. Um, it took decades to fight against that. And again, it's still... You might, a bank might have a Community Reinvestment Act, a CRA advisor, but mm-hmm. um, how much of that is window dressing and how much of that is actually actively investing in those parts of town?
1: So now spending time looking back at the origins of these things, as you think, because I would imagine you do all this study, not because you think, well, I'm going to just make museum exhibits and talk about the past, of how the past sucked. But actually, there must be some way to fix this. How do you see a situation where a place has been allowed to be blighted and it's sort of then it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle of people's attitudes toward it and everybody forgets why it happened? And maybe at a certain point, they don't care why it happened. It just is how it is. How do those how do you see those things in Omaha and other places redlining sort of over time get untied in a way that isn't what happens out here, which is really there's people in the nicer areas that eventually decide, well, I want to move back into areas because of their older houses or I like the neighborhood. And then you have the problem of gentrification. So maybe, I don't know, mix all that in. How do you fix it, and then how do you keep it from the people who've lived there for a long period of time and have geographical roots and historical roots not being pushed out somewhere else once people want this old place that used to be cruddy? I mean,
0: that's and that is that's that is the that is the sixty-four million dollar question because <laughs> okay. um, that's what I'm looking at is looking at Evanston, Illinois, Omaha, Nebraska, and okay. St. Paul, Minneapolis, and their different efforts at kind of mitigation and reparations. So in Evanston, Illinois, they're taking money from when they legalized marijuana, they're taking the tax on that and putting it into a fund where people have to prove that they had property in that, or relatives um, had property within that specific red line area, mm-hmm. and they can use money. They can either get grants or they had a lottery uh, for $25,000 a piece to that would be used for Um, home improvements and mortgages and things like that. Um, St. Paul is pursuing something similar in Omaha. They're using um, reinvestment act funds, but you're right in that if you gentrify, if you start putting money into an area, the Challenge becomes how do you make sure that the people that are benefiting don't get shoved out because their real estate value goes up and they can't pay their taxes on it um, or it's just simply you destroy a neighborhood because people start moving in and the people who live there can't they can't afford to live there anymore and so you get neighborhoods broken up um, how do you make sure that if you are providing funding in a redlined area it doesn't just go to Omaha has a huge problem in that in the north area that um, absentee landlords own a lot of the houses, and so if you if you gave them the money, they would pocket it rather than repair those homes. So that how to do that properly is everyone's kind of in the dark and kind of trying to figure it out. Even to address the question, like you said, like you know, some people are just like, well, that's history. That right. that happened in the past. There's nothing we can do about it now. It's not my fault. It's not my problem. Um, you know, seven in the 70s is when that project ended. So why are you talking to me about it 50 years later? Well, because the damage is still there. Um, so the the research that I'm looking at is just trying to figure out. Even looking at three specific cities, what are they doing and how well it, is it working? And so that's the, my capstone. Will hopefully come up with some recommendations or at least evaluating what the people that are impacted by it, how they see it, whether or not it's successful or not is, is something for 20 years down the line to say like, whether that actually did change those neighborhoods and for the better or worse.
1: Are there places where there has been this kind of concerted, um, reparation reinvestment? So in other countries, were you able to ever look internationally at situations that might be commensurate to this and see wild success stories? Or we're all trying to sort out, there aren't a wild success stories. We're all trying to sort out what a success story could look like and how to do it better.
0: You know, I didn't, I didn't look internationally. I think, I don't, I don't know if redlining is something that exists other places or if this is a specifically US phenomenon. It's a good question.
1: And was there a particular, was it because it was so close to you, was the kind of the light bulb over your head, the kind of conversations people had with you about North Omaha, that kind of guided you into that? Or were you interested in this before that kind of came up?
0: Um, I feel like during my, during my public administration, or during my urban studies classes, it was something Mm -hmm. that it just kept coming up over and over again. and, And it kept looking at this in terms of Omaha as a lens as well. Um. UNO is funding a an initiative to look at UNO's role in mm-hmm. redlining and what we can be, like, what our role can be in repairing the harms. So the university is looking at it, and so my research kind of dovetails it into what they're working on as well. So it worked out pretty well that way. But I, I think, you know, one of the classes that we took, that is a requirement for urban studies program is uh, you have to take a black studies class. Mm -hmm. And we started looking at um, sundown towns and from there, I, you know, it it surprised me because I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona and um, Scottsdale, which is one of the neighborhoods in Phoenix was a sundown town. And I would not have known that. So I started looking more deeply into just how racism and policy impact the, the health of a community. And that's where I, that's how I ended up in redlining
1: uh, with those situations with sundown towns are, are those always, or, or primarily specifically written into the law or are those plays culturally sundown towns?
0: Uh, There's both. Um, okay. Some, some communities had a sign at the outside on the outskirts and that's why it's called a sundown town saying, you know, don't, don't let the sun go down on you here. Yeah. Other places were more um, the You know, like one of the stories that came out of Scottsdale was um, in the 60s, a baseball player. Oh, God, I should remember his name. Um, His team was there for spring training. And while they all stayed in one hotel, he was driven to another hotel 15 miles away because he wasn't allowed to stay in Scottsdale. So, and that was in the sixties. So there wasn't a sign on the edge of town, but there was definitely an understanding that um, you weren't supposed to be there and you definitely weren't going to be able to buy a home there. Um, so there's a real range and it wasn't just, like I said, you, I, I guess I grew up with this naive idea that the South is where all the racism happens. And then you start looking in the North and it's more, um, it's almost because it's, not acknowledged, it's more toxic because when someone has said something right to your face, you can at least address it. If the fact is you don't know why someone won't, why you didn't get that job or why you didn't, weren't the person chosen to buy that house, you don't really have a way to fight back. So the places where it wasn't explicitly written out were they existed. And, and, and so the research that they've done to show that is when you look at, um, the percentage of people in a community, how, like, basically like why some communities are so very, very, very white. Mm-hmm. And there might've been even a time after the civil war where it, and kind of during the Jim Crow years where there was a, a higher percentage of minorities in a community. And why did it go down to the point that it's less than 2%. Well, because um, actions that people took, policies and things like redlining where where homes just weren't sold, um, over time became more segregated.
1: Are there, in the instances you looked at in your project or the things you've read about, were a lot of them, for instance, in Kansas City, it was clearly a racial redlining in all cases was, does it seem like the primary thing it winds up creating a racial difference and a racial divide that was e- either created by it or uh, was there before? Or does class and economics mix in too, where the people in these areas that are redlined, are mixed race is there, and it's less one race than another and more mixed. So in other words, is race a, the, just seems like the major determining factor, or sometimes is it simply economics, the people who wound up stuck in this area?
0: So the like I said before there's A B C and D. Okay. Um depending on some of the cities D a, a block would be like it and it, the maps broke things down to like a little city block and oh, geez. there was okay. one black person living on that block it was rated D. C was the neighborhoods where it was mixed it could be um all these, it, you, know, you have you look at it now and you're like, oh my gosh, but like Italian, Jewish, black, like all of these sort of undesirables as they would have right. back then. Um, that was enough to make a mixed, a mixed block was C desirable. So really not quite as bad as D, but definitely um, problematic for a lender. And so um, that's, it's whether... It was race that hardcore some places, yes, but, but even an, even a neighborhood where different people were living together happily became, uh, in, in the end, more segregated just because people eventually, whether they wanted to or not, found themselves moving out.
1: Is this is up is the capstone project you're working on now? Is this the thing? Is it sort of a thing you are going to make your entire future career on, or does it feel like something you're interested in? But it doesn't have to be the next forty years of your academic or professional work.
0: I I see that I will continue to be definitely continue to be interested in it and and yeah. um we'll be watching Omaha very carefully in terms of what we do over the next few years with funding being released into that area. Um, I just think that from an urban studies in general perspective, it makes me think that there is, there's, there's a moral and ethical basis that has to be part of the decisions that we make as city planners. When we look at who's, we, you know which developments happen where, where funding is applied, whether it's cities, parks, or roads, or um, zoning a, a, a neighborhood. Um, wh- it's not just as simple as what's on paper. It 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 affects lives, and so when we we need to bring a moral compass to our work. And I think that whether whether it had something, whether it's a city planner or a city manager, um, that is where I kind of see my my work reminds people that whether or not it's specifically redlining, the decisions that you make on what you're working on can have a, a really deep impact that has nothing to do with concrete and, I mean, even things like the of sustainability and green spaces and, and looking forward, those are decisions that have a moral, a, a moral depth to them that we need to think about.
1: So having looked at this many more years than I have, but only from the outside being the standard cynical citizen of looking at city councils and city planning that happens in many mid-sized cities and then into smaller suburban cities, and thinking, you know what, a lot of this just has to do with tax base and short-term gains, which are hard to look away from. Again, selling selling land to the highest bidder, selling public land to the highest bidder, making decisions based on the fact that that business or that retail thing or those houses are going to bring in better tax base and more money for the city is better, right? Mm-hmm. Is that you see as a, a the, an overwhelming trend in public administration or do you think that's just... Sometimes it happens, but that doesn't have to be the cynical citizen view of how these things work out.
0: So I, I, I it doesn't have to be. Um, okay. <laughs> I feel like the the young you were talking before. You asked me before about like being the the generation that I am in my classes. I look yeah. at the people that went straight from undergrad into these, and then and now with some of the people that I know that are working in city planning and and that type of field. They do bring a different, uh, sensibility and yeah, they're going to be up against it with people that have been in those jobs for 40 years and, you know, the developers and all of it. But, uh, if, if I'm seeing stories on CBS news about redlining, that means that there's going to be more people who can go to a city council meeting and say, you know, we don't think this is right. Or why are you, why are you doing it this way? And the people that I went through urban studies with are going to be the ones who can actually work the other side. If you've got one side working on the kind of public awareness of it, these are the people who can maybe use the, the code and the policies and find out where change can happen, where it's, yes, it, it would be easy for cities to sell out and just say like, yeah, if we do all of this, it's going to be, better for us financially, but right. I don't think it has to be that way.
1: So this is a, a bit off topic, but I'm curious because you've sort of just lived through it. For you, what was study like for your major in in the in the work you were doing during COVID? So it, did it curtail anything? Did it make things – you didn't like classes as much or things were more difficult or stretched out deadlines? What happened?
0: I, I We went to um, pretty much all – I, I started the program. We were having classes in class and then okay. um, went to online and I am, I much prefer in person. Um, I did not really enjoy the zoom classes. Um, there's a different energy that happens online. I, I enjoyed even with the younger students, you know, just being able to interact and um, yeah, it, there you know i think professors did their best on being lenient with people and understanding it but it i know from talking to professors it's a lot harder and a lot more work to do a successful online class than it is to do an in-person class
1: yeah what do what do your friends and family think about the the studies you've done in public administration and urban studies are they super curious do they have weird preconceptions <laughs> about what you're doing
0: um, I mean, public administration was easy because I came out of a, a background of working for nonprofits. So they just thought that I was basically studying what I did
1: okay. on the day-to-day.
0: Um, urban studies, by the time I got to this one, they were just like, why are you getting another degree? That's just what you like to do. And you asked me before why, and I'm like, because I have a hole in my head. Um, and I, apparently I don't like myself very much. So I like to torture myself by having these classes. And I swear to God, this is going to be the last degree uh <laughs> And then everybody says, why don't you get a PhD? And I'm like, because there's nothing that I'm passionate enough about to spend another five years studying and then want to do for, you know, for a living. So I like going to classes. I like learning, but I don't think, I think this is going to be my last degree.
1: And look, I don't want you to have to prognosticate your future, but I am curious because you've been, had paid work in academia, had paid work in nonprofit, and then you could go into work for, um the, for government, Uh do you have a vision for which way necessary? Would you want to mix in all three? Do you have a vision for like, I want to go get a job, blah.
0: So right now I'm, I'm incredibly lucky in that. I, like I said, I get to work with about 30 nonprofits. I get the best of both worlds. I, I don't work with a specific one. I get to work with everybody and I love it. Um, I don't see myself in academia as a teacher. Um, I would, if I left my current position, let's put it that way. If I left my current yeah. position, the job that I would want would be back in um, a nonprofit.
1: Okay. Uh, I'm curious about that because I have never worked for a nonprofit, but I've, I've volunteered in big capacities with nonprofits and there's a different kind of frustration with a nonprofit than yeah. there is a for-profit or government. From your experience, what has it been like for you working with nonprofits and why you feel like you gravitate toward that, even though knowing nonprofits can be very frustrating in their own way.
0: So I, I have worked in the, the for-profit world. Um, and the difference is, despite what people think, you're not going to get rich working for a nonprofit. Um, right. I've had somebody ask me that. I don't know where that idea came from. But um, <laughs> people who work for nonprofits do it because they truly love what they, they get up every day and they go to work because they want to be there. And when I was working in the corporate world, people work for a paycheck. And that's a very different energy to be around. So people who work for nonprofits, they, they, they'll they'll put up with a lot and but they do love what they do and they're trying to change the world. And you know, for, for better or worse, people who work in the for profit world, they're they're supporting themselves, but I don't think that there's the same internal nourishment that happens in that world.
1: Um if if students are thinking about pursuing a degree in urban studies at your university um what has anybody for instance has anybody who's curious about this degree come and asked you about it and then or what would you tell them i mean what would you tell them about the degree or whether they should do it or not or how they should know if this is the degree for them if urban studies at at your school is the place for them
0: mm-hmm. um so we i would say it's we our public administration our, our pr- college itself um, yep. is one of the top in the country. It's one of the top ranked in the country, for, especially for public administration, urban studies. It's a little bit of a newer program, but it's also the classes are small. The professors are very engaged with their students, and um, I think if that's the environment that you want, it's a great place to be. And I also think if you're, it's it is a place where if you want to there there are definitely jobs in the field and if you wanted to feel like you're part of a community and and have impact on it urban studies is a great way to go
1: is there a way you would counsel someone if someone said they're really passionate about nonprofit and they're particularly passionate about, about all these things relating to urban studies? Is there a way you'd tell someone, oh, I think you should go do X amount of time with nonprofits or X amount of time volunteering before you show up? Or you think, no, no, I can see this trajectory all the time college, college to master's, college to master's.
0: So, as somebody who went. First master's was in literature and then started working in the nonprofit world. Yeah. I would say um, you don't have to have a master's degree to work for a nonprofit. It's a great way to f- find out if this is the field that you want to be in. Um the master's degree. I think I would do, I would work for a nonprofit first and then do the master's degree. Um, in in urban studies, not necessarily because I think in urban studies, you probably would benefit by having the credentials and the training where nonprofits, you can pick up a lot more on the go. And maybe I just say that because that's what I did, but the PA program, I learned, I learned a lot in terms of, um, leadership. And like I said, I, I got more into policy than I did that I would have mm-hmm. worked working for just one specific nonprofit. So it gave me an, an overview of the field more. But wanting to work for a nonprofit, yeah, just dive in, find one that you're passionate about, get a job at it and, and see if that's where you want to be.